Isn't it good to hear those kind of stories? Yep. I, uh, I remember back, uh, I don't remember everything, but I remember very specifically driving on 840, coming from Nashville to Murfreesboro and getting a call from Chris on the phone and uh, asking for help. And, um, uh, and again, I, I played a small role, as, as many people did in our church, but uh, I'm thinking their mountain was moved uh, because they did ask for help. They listened to their help. Matter of fact, they sat through some very hard conversations in humility and with teachability and quit trusting themselves and let others who were more mature and in good places help them walk step by step out of the darkness. Matter of fact, the question that everybody uh, has to respond to when they're in darkness to walk out of it is, will you listen to what the counselors of many say to you and not trust your own intuition. And I'm thankful that they did that. But the, the recipe for that change is uh, true for all of us. Amen? Good stuff. Well, turn with me this morning to Isaiah 56. <clears throat> As we begin... I want to do some repetition for us this morning as we speak on the topic of a faithful walk, a faithful walk. And I want to walk us through some repetition of the whole book of Isaiah as we come to this last section. Can you believe that? We're in the last section of Isaiah. Some of y'all are saying amen, right? And I want you to know Monty and I are saying amen too. We're going to go back and teach some New Testament after this, okay? So we're together, but it sure has been good. So let me remind you that Isaiah is made up of two sections, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. In the midst of this second section, Isaiah is broken down into two other sections, which is 40 through 55 and 56 through 66. So today we enter, as I said, that last section. And this last section, you may want to note in your notes, is called the Christian life. Many have called it, this is Christianity 101. The New Testament, matter of fact, has 11 direct quotes from chapters 56 through 66 and over 80 uh, verbal allusions to these last chapters. So many have said these last chapters, 56 through 66, definitely are a direct relation to the church. Now, just to step back for a minute, as we think about Isaiah, we start with Isaiah chapter 6. The whole outworking of the book comes from that chapter where a man, Isaiah, a man of unclean lips gets this powerful glimpse of the glory of the Holy One of Israel. He receives a fiery and merciful cleansing from that God. And then his response to that God was to go obey him and tell the rest of Israel about this Holy One of Israel. See the pattern? Sin, mercy, obey. Let's not get that out of order. Sinful man, merciful God, obedience in response to that merciful God in spite of that sin. And then we have chapters 1 through 39. We see a people with unclean lips 
get a vision of God compared to and in contrast to a vision of themselves, they in chapters 40 through 55 receive a gracious and uh, for gracious forgiveness and deliverance of God. And now in chapters 56 through 66, God is exhorting them and enabling them to obey him. Sin, mercy, obey. And then the people of God in Isaiah 1 through 39, uh, what Isaiah did, if you remember, was he confronted them with their sin. <laughs> their repeated failure to treat God as God. They spoke of God and they did an external acting in worship of God, but they basically lived like practical atheists. And God said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. When you've been sinful and you've received mercy, you are to obey. And so God in discipline sent them to exile. And then in chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah, if you remember, has this double prophetic voice where he looks beyond the present generation of people into the near future and the far future. What is that? The near future was how is God going to save his sinful people and bring them back home to Jerusalem? That's the people in exile. That's the near future, which was a picture for us of the what? Far future, which is how is God going to save his sinful people from their sins and bring them home to him? Isaiah speaks of coming, the coming Messiah in the far future, the suffering servant of whom the Lord will lay the iniquity of us all to bring those who trust in the work of the servant home. And it's no coincidence you need to know how this flows. It makes a difference. There's no coincidence that as Christ followers, our faithful walk is pre, not premeditated. What did I put down? What did you say? Ordained. Yes, whatever that is. Yeah, we're good. Ordained, right? So, um, yes, 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 I agree. Amen. It's predicated. That's what I was trying to say. Thank you. On the last two messages that we talked, two weeks ago, I talked in Isaiah 52, 12 through, or 52, 13 through 53, 12. I taught on the suffering servant and the work of the suffering servant. Last week in chapters 54 and 55, many of you were here. Monty taught on this gracious call of God to all those to respond from the work of the servant. That he did on their behalf to respond to him. Come to the Lord and repent. And obey and surrender. And now. Out of that. In Isaiah 56. 1 through 8. God's expectation is for us to obey. Sin. Mercy. Obedience. See the pattern. Even to narrow it down just a little bit. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, the people here are just now returning from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. There were many frustrations and hardships as they return. There's tensions with the foreigners who have taken over their land while they were gone. The Persian Empire was still controlling the area of Jerusalem. And so the people of God were home but it, it really didn't feel like home, 
Right, they're, they're back in the geographical place where they came from when they came out of ex exile, but things had changed. It looked different. It felt different. It wasn't home. They were a minority in their own land. Things were not as they had been, but things were not also as they were going to be. They were at the beginning of what God had promised but had not reached the fullness of that promise. Now here's what that means. That means that sounds like you and I. We live in the same tensions and frustrations because we live between the first advent and the second advent. We live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we feel those tensions and those frustrations. Paul writes of those frustrations and tensions in Romans when he says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We are the times between the times. Do you feel that frustration daily and your present struggle with sin? Yes, that's a good answer. Here's what waiting does for them and for us. Waiting tests our patience and our faithfulness. In the last days, which we live in, between the past, the already, the cross, and the future, the not yet, what are the people to God to do in the midst of their present struggle with sin? Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 tells us that. And the first thing he does, he gives us the what and why of a faithful Christ follower. Read verse 1 with me. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Notice that the first thing, straight from the very mouth of God, thus, what? Thus says the Lord, we get the what. The what of a faithful Christ follower. And there are two commands. He says, keep justice and do righteousness. Literally, guard justice and do right. Some of what Monty even spoke of this morning uh, with the ministry to the ladies and the stepping stones. The people being addressed here in Isaiah 56 are the same people that God had given this gracious call of the gospel in chapters 54 and 55. And they are responding. The last thing as we read this, think about this. You got sinful people, mercy of God obey. The last thing on God's mind and heart is for sinful people to be given mercy and yet do as they please. To do whatever their world, the flesh, and the devil woos them to do. That is the last thing on God's mind. Matter of fact, the very opposite. He says, "You no doubt you have sinned. I had to send the suffering servant to lay the iniquity of your sin on him. I extended great mercy to you. And now the expectation from God is for us to obey. The rich and merciful gospel invitation of chapter 55 that Monty spoke on last week is immediately followed up with an obligation, a moral obligation to obey the one who has shown great mercy. 
We know that faith in Christ leads to right standing with God. And right standing with God leads to conformity to the will of God, proof in righteous deeds. That's how it works. I'm going to make this statement, but don't call me a heretic till I finish this statement, okay? Works are necessary for you to get an eternal future with the Lord Jesus. That gives me the heebie-sheebies, right? It's true. It's just not your works. It's the works of the suffering servant. One writer put it this way, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Never. I have a great aversion to those who can come to Christ, say they came to Christ, and live as they please. Because I grew up in that kind of home. Those who God saves, he changes. Now this change is terribly messy at times. And slow. And ugly. And much of it depends on how willing the patient is in connection to the great physician. But change for sure. And here's Chris right here talking about change where he walked away from God, left his wife and the God of heaven because Chris knew Christ came after him, pursued him, will track you down. It's better than the FBI. He can find you. I'm not an English major. None of you would guess that I am. <laughs> Since I can't even say the word predicate, right? But uh, I am reminded of my, uh, my first summer in seminary. My first book I bought was basically a book uh, like English for dummies. You know, as I tried to relearn the English language to begin writing papers. And the one thing I remember was the imperative always follows the indicative. Some of you are going, what's an imperative and what's an indicative? You're just like I am, right? An imperative is simply a command and an indicative is a statement of fact. The indicative here is that God saves sinners. Fact. The imperative, therefore, Keep justice and do right. Obey. Although you and I are born not wanting to do right. Matter of fact, we're born wanting to do wrong. Romans 2 tells us this. That what is right is written on our very conscience. In our hearts. Therefore, God has a right to say to every man, woman, and child, do what is right. And if so, how much more does he have the right to say to those who have tasted of the kindness of God in Christ, the goodness of the Lord, the gospel, the mercy of God given to you in the midst of your sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more does he have the right to say to us who claim Christ's blood for our forgiveness, do right and do justice? Hmm. To be sinful and experience mercy and then to say, I'm going to do what I want, what I want, when I want, and where I want is a great distortion 
and perversion of the grace of God at the highest level. Christ's blood and God's word has an authoritative claim on our lives to guard justice and do right. The last part of Isaiah verse 1. Isaiah gives us the why behind the what. That's the what. Here's the why behind it. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. That's the why. Literally it says my righteousness will be revealed. The reason we do what is right is because God's salvation and righteousness has come in the past of the cross. And it will come in its finality in the great hope and future return of the Jesus himself. He says that's the reason. We live between the times. One has come already and one is yet to come. And that is the motivation, as I'll speak of later, to do what is right. He uses this phrase, my salvation, is, and it's a direct reference to Jesus himself. You can maybe write down to verse Luke 2.30. Here's the picture. Simeon is an old man. He's been praying for years and years in the temple daily that he would be able to see the Messiah before his death. And on Jesus' eighth day, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, if you remember the story, and Simeon got to lay eyes on the Messiah. And his response was, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. So this phrase salvation is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And then it Isaiah uses the phrase, the righteousness to be revealed in the gospel. That simply comes out of Romans. Or Romans comes out of it. Everybody want to put it. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in it. For in it, what is it? The gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So here's how you and I would put it. You have been saved. Past tense. When you placed your trust in Christ, your security for your eternal salvation was done forever. That's where we get our word justification. That God looks at us just as if we've never sinned. And just as if we've always done what's right. You have been saved. And then there's this very true statement. As, that's the past. As we live in the present times. Which is you will be saved. You will be saved. Meaning that's sanctification. That in our daily struggle with sin. God is at work in us to defeat that sin and to obey. He is growing us into his very image. And then there's this last phrase, you will be saved. And the biblical word is glorification. That when we take our last breath, uh, all is well, all is perfect. The struggle is over. As Christians... Who want to be considered faithful. Not perfect. Take the word out of your vocabulary. But faithful. Well done my good and faithful servant. We must keep our eyes on these two different things. We look back daily at the cross. 
And here's what the cross does. We look at the cross and it melts our hearts and wells our hearts with gratitude. That is a great motivation to the past. But that's not all. In the midst of our present struggle, we turn and we look to the future. The great hope and certainty of the return of Christ and my death to be in his presence forever. And it's those two things on a daily swivel. I said the first service, you need to be turkey eyes. Eye on each side so you can see it. To look at both, those are the things that transform us and allow us to walk faithfully obey God in the midst of this life in between the times in this struggle. So, the what and why of a faithful Christ follower. Secondly, the blessedness of obedience in the life of a faithful Christ follower. Look at verse 2. Isn't it better not to be doing like seven chapters, right? You're doing a verse at a time. This is, this feels easier. <laughs> verse 2. Blessed is the man who does this. This is keep justice and do righteousness. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, profaning it and keeps his hand doing any from doing any evil. This is really Psalm 1 kind of language. Psalm 1 says, Blessed or happy or joyful is the man, woman, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The benefits or blessings of obedience is it brings joy to our souls. Happy is the man who guards justice and does righteousness. In total transparency, you and I must agree that sin is pleasurable for seasons. Can you say amen to that? It says that in the Bible, by the way. It says that. Here's how I try to explain it to my kids. They love roller coasters. Many of you love roller coasters. And a three-minute ride on a roller coaster is certainly pleasurable in a weird kind of way, right? And we take those pictures as we come down. Woo, you know. Look at your face and, you know. But a three-hour ride on a roller coaster is miserable. And that's the way sin is. Sin's pleasurable for three minutes. But for a lifetime, it's miserable. What I try to tell my kids... I've been there. I've done that. You don't have to go there. You don't have to go there even to dip your toe in it, which most teenagers try. Let's alone for a lifetime. It brings no joy, no happiness. I hear non-Christians and sadly Christians say all the time, I just want to be happy. Therefore, I'm going to do this or that. And that this or that is antithetical to the revealed will of God from his word. But their desire to be happy is so overwhelming, they're willing to dismiss God's counsel to them and others' counsel from godly people. And they actually reject it. They do the very opposite of what Chris and Steph did. And they go their own way. 
What we need to understand is that God wired us this way. He hardwired us for wanting to be happy, this desire to be happy and joy and pleasure and to have a natural aversion from misery. Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, all men want to be happy. Happiness is the motivation for some men going to war and for others avoiding war. And it's also the motivation for those who hang themselves. That's how powerful it is to experience happiness and joy. And so here's what scripture does. It appeals to this innate desire in us. To find joy in the one who hardwired you for joy. Find happiness and obedience to God. Isaiah uses this phrase here. Hold fast to it. And here's what it means. It means it's more than dutiful external obedience. We're not just talking about drudgery in obeying God. Chad's going to speak of the consequences of that next week. See, see, Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 is saying this is what God's people ought to be. And next week, Chad's going to speak on this is what God's people actually are. They have been playing church games with dutiful obedience. And it was nothing but legalism motivated by fear, which is unsustainable. Versus biblical obedience that emerges out of the merciful gospel. It emerges out of God's great grace toward you. And out of that, obedience now comes from the heart and is beautiful and alive and desirable. The gospel makes us new creations. And a new creation's have new desires. And how I try to put it to my kids growing up is one of the great evidences that you are a new creation is now you have a conflict in desires. <laughs> and it's very true and real. You feel that. The things you used to want to do, now there's a conflict inside of you. Something changes. Sin Mercy obeyed. That's the pattern. There's two behaviors that are expressed in the person who experiences the blessed life, the happy life. Isaiah writes, one's very specific, the Sabbath, and one's very general. Think how general this is. Avoid any evil. <laughs> he is about as wide as you can get. The specific command, though here's what the point is. The specific command to honor the Sabbath is what gives definition to an understanding of what it means to avoid any evil. When you honor the Sabbath and you come together with God's people to be equipped in God's word and ways, that gives definition to, illustration to, expression to, application to what it means to avoid any evil. And if you don't have that, then guess what? You don't know what avoid any evil is and you make up what you want to do and you think it's right in your own heart. That's the point he's making here. So Sabbath keeping, 
<laughs> I grew up, I remember, very, I remember 309 North Pollock Street, Selma, North Carolina, pushing the grass on a Sunday afternoon. It's more like pushing, cutting weeds. And a deacon drives by, rolls his windows down, and told me I was in sin for working on the Sabbath. That's exactly the heart that the Pharisees and many Christians never get about the Sabbath. That's what they think it is. The Sabbath keeping is the ordering of one's life around God as creator and redeemer. In Exodus, it speaks of the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. It speaks of it as being an ordinance of creation, just like marriage and work. In Deuteronomy, I believe Deuteronomy 5, it speaks of it in a redeemer, that honor the Sabbath because God, your redeemer, took you out of Israel. It's an ordered life that centers itself around God and the things of God. A weekly dress rehearsal for heaven. My life on that day is no longer business as usual. I understand I've come under God's great care. I march by his drumbeat with the expectation of heaven. Our ultimate Sabbath is Christ himself because he is a, what? New, makes us a new creation. He's our ultimate redeemer. So here we are revolving our lives around him once a week in a rhythm, six days work, one day rest. I like to think of it this way. All through the week, I want to be about taking these many Sabbaths, I call them. Time to, an intentional time to disrupt my schedule, to get away, to spend time with God, to rest, to get my mind and heart oriented around God before I begin my day. The mini Sabbath. And then the massive Sabbath on Sunday where we come together as a body to hear the word of God, to connect with the people of God and the ways of God so that I can go out the other six days and avoid any evil. That's how it's done. And truth be told, because there's no Sabbath keeping happening in your life every day, every week, every month. And I understand how easy you can get there. There's no disruption of the schedule to reorient your life, which is prone to wander, to reorient your life around the things of God. No wonder you're struggling spiritually to avoid any evil. Now, covertly, what I'm saying, and I'm going to make overt, <laughs> come to church! There's something about this time and make your Sundays feel different than the rest of your week. Matter of fact, if I were totally honest and I would say this to myself, unless I just had to take a job to provide for my family, it would be hard for me to say, yes, it'd be hard to work on Sunday. Oh Lord, would you provide a job where I would not have to? And I understand with great compassion some of you have to. So that I can worship on Sunday and get reoriented. Jesus says we were not made for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was made for us. 
God knows how humans work best. Six days work, one day rest, and that rhythm is beautiful. Matter of fact, <laughs> one of the reasons God sent the people of Israel to captivity in Babylon is because they profaned the Sabbath. And as they profaned the Sabbath, the result was they did not avoid evil. <laughs> they did not know who God was nor his ways. And so they went their own way. Thirdly, the makeup and the marks of a faithful Christ follower. Makeup of the marks. Let's read verses 3 through 7. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who chose the things that who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write the passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 21 in your notes. Isaiah 56, 3 through 8 is the seedbed for Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. It is amazing the correlation there. So read that on your own this week. Here's what Paul does. I mean, Isaiah, Paul, um, you're safe with either one of those, right? When in doubt, quote Isaiah or Paul. Uh, Here's what Paul says, the makeup of a faithful Christ follower. He uses two words. He uses the word foreigner or Gentile. An example is like Ruth, who was a foreigner, who was a Moabite, who abandoned her false gods and from the heart joined herself to the God of Israel. And then he mentions the eunuchs. Now, we don't use that word much in our society, but... Uh, in that day, I think, based on what I've read and studied, they were more common from birth, from tragic accidents, uh, intentionality. Um, and he says here, and they were outcasts. He says the eunuch, the one who cannot bear physical fruit, a big deal in that day, can find great dignity and worth and value in the limitless grace of God. The big point is no one is beyond the great long arm of mercy of the Holy One of Israel. No one. Not the foreigner, not even the foreigner, and not even the eunuch. Verse 4, Isaiah now explains why these two groups of folks no longer need to be outcast. It is not important what nation they're from. He's making that point. It is not important what social status they have. It is not important what color their skin is. It is not important what title they have. There's nothing about them that is important, nor is it important that they, whether they can bear children, sons and daughters or not. But he says there are 
three things that are important. It's important that they keep my Sabbath to worship with the people of God. There's something about that that is life-changing. Monty mentioned community in Steph and Chris's story. Secondly, they choose the things that please me. That's what God says. And thirdly, they hold fast to my covenant, to doctrine. These three things speak in relational terms. These people love what God loves. They hate what God hates. And they want what God wants. That's what matters. Verse 5. God tells them they'll be remembered with a monument better than sons or daughters. A legacy that will not be forgotten. They will not be cut off. A permanent connection with the God of Israel. A spiritual legacy that will be remembered and highlighted by the word faithful for all eternity. Here's the picture. Acts chapter 8. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember? We're still reading about him. We're still reading about him. Not his sons and daughters. God says you don't have to have children. To be faithful. Christ followers. Verses 6 through 8 as we wind up. These foreigners. Have three character qualities. As they join themselves to the Lord. First, they minister to him. They worship. They love his name. Because his name represents his kindness to them. And they become his slaves or servants. They no longer do what they want. They've been bought with the blood of Christ. They are under a mandate to be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that those three things, none of them join themselves to the Lord, these people, for the benefits of that relationship. Now, are there benefits? Absolutely. We talked about some of those. But they join themselves to the Lord not to benefit themselves, not as a sugar daddy. Not to be pimped out. But they join themselves to the Lord for the benefit of the Lord and the Lord's mission. <clears throat> and then Isaiah says, they'll, they'll be at my mountain. It won't be a geographical, geographical mountain at Jerusalem, Zion. It's heaven. It's eternity. There's a certainty here. Where their sins are forgiven and they have access to me. <laughs> That's where they'll end up. To hear these very words. Welcome into my presence thy good and faithful servant. Crown of life. We take the crown and we give back to him. And we say, ultimately you did it. That's the picture here. That's the expectation. That sinners saved by a merciful God. The expectation is to obey. Brother Lawrence put it this way. He said, let us think often. That our only business in this life is to please God. 
perhaps all besides is but folly and vanity. A couple questions as we ask the question, so what? Do you have a heart to obey? Do you have a heart to obey? Lord, I want to keep justice. I want to do righteousness. And secondly, a follow-up question is, why do you obey? It is, is it out of duty, out of drudgery, out of fear? This unhealthy fear that produces legalism? Or is it because your heart's been melted by this kind, gracious, merciful God in the midst of your sin while you were at sinners showed mercy to you? Take a minute to ask those questions this morning. pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you as a, a sinful people who worship a merciful God. And we want to respond to that mercy in heartfelt obedience. I pray you would help each of us, myself included, to, to hear from you, to be convicted by you about areas in my life that need, that are sin, that need confessing. Where we need to obey, that we would go back daily with these many Sabbaths to review the gospel and rehearse the gospel to ourselves and out of the great gratitude that you've of your mercy out of the great hope of your certain return and our eternity with you it would give us the motivation the power to obey I pray to you in closing that you would uh, you place some people in our life uh, we would go to those people and say I need help I'm stuck I'm, I'm in, I'm in the, between the times and I'm really stuck here. I can't see past. I can't see future. But I'm, I'm in a mess. And I don't want to stay here. I pray you, you'd have folks reach out where they need to reach out. And that your people would rally around them. Lord, we love you. 
We're grateful. Thank you that you've called us to a life, life of blessed happiness through obedience motivated by your great love for us. And everyone said, Amen. Have a great week in hot July. <laughs>